Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Its director, Anne Philbin, describes the Hammer Museum as a unique, cutting-edge arts institution that connects the classics and the contemporary through its varied collections, wide-ranging exhibitions, and provocative programs. Recently, Socalo teamed up with the Hammer Museum to present one such provocative program, Dirty Business, Should the Porn Industry Be Saved? It's been estimated that the Los Angeles porn industry brings in $12 billion a year, the industry went through a period of explosive growth the last two decades, but it's now facing many of the same challenges as other media companies, changing demographics, new technologies, and the availability of content through new channels. Beyond the economic considerations, what about health concerns and social costs? Tonight's panel, porn producers and former actors Nina Hartley and Ira Levine, economist Jack Kaiser, and Sharon Mitchell of the Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation, weigh these factors in a lively discussion moderated by Mario Garza of the Los Angeles Daily News. Here is Mario Garza. Just to get us going, let's start with Jack. And Jack, can you give us sort of a uh, economic overview of the industry? Tell us what's at stake. What are we talking about in terms of, of revenues, of impact? And explain exactly what we mean when we say on adult entertainment industry. Okay, well, some people wonder why you keep information on this industry, but it is an industry. We estimated it employs more people than uh, software development in Los Angeles County. So it's a sizable activity. And just like the mainstream entertainment industry, it is poorly reported on. Uh, this is a challenge you have. But you have about 200 firms. You have 6,000 workers. You have about 1,200 actors. They produce 4,000 to 7,000 films a year. And uh, just for video sales, it's about $4.3 billion in sales and rentals a year. And then there's the bigger industry, which includes uh, books and uh, toys and other things like that, which is over $12 billion. So it's a sizable industry. We got a call from the county health department one time asking for information, and they were thrilled that we could give them some information. So there you go. So what are some of the business challenges that face the industry, industry that maybe face all industries but uh, are impacting this one as well? Well, the, the biggest thing, of course, is the image. A lot of people are nervous about it. Uh, I lived in Omaha, Nebraska for five years, and I can tell you that the people in the Midwest are big consumers of this uh, output. <laughs> well, they are. Uh, but, and then uh, they suffer from piracy. People don't think about that. Yeah. But piracy is a major issue. The health issues, obviously. And then you're seeing a shift to online and amateur productions. And so you have to say this is – it sounds amazingly like uh, the mainstream film industry – and who knows what might happen. But the benefits is that you look at the entertainment industry in Los Angeles right now, we do not have any incentives to offer our film industry. And so you're seeing a lot of production go to other states. And so this industry provides some employment for people who might not otherwise be able to get a job. So what's at stake? How much, uh, how much money does it put into the economy? Are we talking just a few million? Are we talking how many businesses? How many bus What's the ripple effect? It's, Sorry, it's, that's a lot of questions. It's a lot of questions, yeah. Uh, it's over $4 billion in revenue just for the videos. Mm -hmm. And uh, people don't stop to think about what you call the ripple impact. Mm -hmm. For every direct worker, there's probably at least one additional person out there in L.A. County who has a job because of this activity. You have to distribute it. You have to print uh, the cases. It's a very interesting activity. It's an industry producing a product, and it takes uh, a lot of people to get it onto the shelves or wherever people uh, buy it. Well, Ira, maybe you can add your perspective. As a producer who heck, actually uh, uh, makes films and employs mm -hmm. people, tell us what you see as the business challenges for this industry. Well, I'd, I'd have to agree that we face many of the same challenges that other entertainment-oriented industries face. We face uh, changing demographics. We face new technologies. We face uh, the availability of content through a variety of new channels, some of which are revenue generators for us and some of which are uh, basically a revenue leakage for us. 
We also have a, a kind of a unique situation in that our industry underwent a period of explosive growth over the last two decades. And uh, now I believe that we have a sort of a classic supply and demand problem where supply uh, now outruns demand to a certain extent and that there is a correction in progress. It was not just in the stock market. We're having that correction, too. And uh, to some extent, it's uh, become more difficult to uh, sell uh, products to the uh, numbers of people that we used to. But that pain is fairly widely distributed throughout the entertainment industry in Los Angeles County. There are places that are hurting worse. If you compare our situation to the recording industry situation, I would take our situation over theirs any day of the week because their particular target demographic is narrower and it is a quicker adopter of new technologies and uh, more more quick to abandon old ones and have, has uh, fewer problems with the idea of getting content for free. They don't really quite understand that if that happens long enough, there won't be any content, whereas I think our consumers sort of realize there is some connection between their paying for our products and our ability to make them. So there is a, we, we do have uh, some market adjustment going on, but I'm curious in a way about the, the, the title of this panel because it would seem to suggest that the pornography industry in Los Angeles is in some danger of going away, which I don't think is realistic. I don't think it's endangered in that sense, either as a collective enterprise, nor do I feel that those who participate in it are some kind of an endangered species. You know, when television first came along, people thought that movies might become an endangered species, including a lot of film studio executives who had that concern. But television and film learned to live together, and I believe that we're going to learn to live with new media and new uh, new audiences, and uh, that we're going to be around for a long time. As you've just heard, an industry of this scale is not a small thing that's likely to just fade away into the desert. We're here to stay. Well, in the recent years, there's been some uh, alarm sounded about the amateur amateur uh, online video production you know the people youtubing it in their in their own backyard talk, let's talk a little bit about that realistically its impact on the industry is that really the uh, something to worry about everything if you're if you're a person who makes entertainment for a living everything is something to worry about <laughs> Is that if you don't like to worry, I suggest a different line of work because it's all about that. Of course, that's something to worry about. But where would I assign it on the list of worries? I don't know, pretty far down there, actually. The truth of the matter is that competition from the Internet, which is uh, you know has a lot of people in the classic videotape physical product part of the industry now on DVD – blame for a lot of our problems uh, is not necessarily an enemy. After all, it also cr- helps create demand. It brings new consumers who seek out products in addition to whatever they see on the Internet, including physical products that we sell or uh, products that can be downloaded for profit through the Internet. It's also an advertising medium for us. So I'm not sure whether it's it's one of those kind of threat or menace situations. I'm not sure which one it really is. It's either a threat or a menace. I haven't decided which. But I don't think it's that big of one, and I don't think it's likely in the long run to prove a bad thing for us. And one thing that's very interesting is that people who are on the DVD side of the video industry, which is mainly where I am, are saying, oh, the Internet is killing us. We're dying on the vine because all of our products are going out on, you know, porno tube for free and so on and so forth. And there's all that file sharing going on. Then you go on the websites where adult webmasters talk among themselves and they say, we're dying out here. You know, they're get, the subscription-driven sites are all tanking and now everybody's getting all this content up there for free and the pirates are killing us. So depending on what part of any entertainment industry you're in, you're going to hear lots of bad news. But are there, are there figures and numbers that actually back up this uh, worry? None that I believe. <laughs> I hear all kinds of wild figures thrown around. I read, I read in, some, you know, in some anti-porn screed on the Internet the other day that it's a $56 billion industry. Mm-hmm. $56 billion industry, that almost rivals pet products. You know, that they- you know, I don't know where they get these numbers. I mean, I know your numbers I trust, but there are a lot of other numbers being thrown around that I don't think are very reliable. I think it's mostly guesswork because mm-hmm. there's an awful lot that the, the truth of the matter is we do no market research or marketing research in our industry. We don't have focus groups. We don't do surveying or polling. So nobody really knows. The answer is we don't know. Well, well, that's that is a good question. You see a lot of different numbers and I have seen wildly exaggerated numbers. I've seen really low numbers like one billion. Yeah. So, Jack, tell us, how, how do we trust this, this information? Where does it come from? How do you gather it? You, you gather it from a whole variety of resources. Uh, you read a lot, and you find uh, 
references to various uh, numbers, mm-hmm. and then you have to say what is the believability of the source. And uh, there used to be supposed to adult video news mm-hmm. out there, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and everybody said no, you really can't uh, trust them because they tend to sort of push the numbers up. Uh, the true said, numbers they, are very close to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, so I tend to trust your. Yeah, they probably get it from him. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's he's it's the tough. economic guru. Yeah, but you know, for example, say somebody working on a paid film crew on an adult movie, they would show up in the state employment department numbers, and you can't sort out. You know, these are people in TV, these are people in uh, studio films, and these are people in the adult industry. So there could be a lot of revenue mm-hmm. that's actually not being reported or not reported in the category that you know how to. Exactly. It yeah. you know, it, a grip's it's, a grip, it's a grip. Yeah, yeah particularly on the, on the other side of the camera line. You have a, the public has a pretty good idea who's in front of the camera, but on the other side of the camera line, there are people who go back and forth between mainstream and mm-hmm. X-rated all the time. Mm-hmm. So they're part of the general employment base of the, of the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, which is a very, very large thing. But what percentage of that we represent, I'm not sure. And, and on the uh, talent aspect of it, I, I do know that when we were uh, just able to test all the talent members in Los Angeles, it was, you know, 12 to 1,500 talent members. And then we, because of the Internet and the mom and pops, DVD, little companies all over the United States that really wanted to get that AIM healthcare seal of approval so that they could sell their, their items if they wanted to to distributors. We now have found that, you know, on some months it's 2500 on some months it's 3500 So it's not just in Los Angeles now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people testing from all over the United States. So we had to open ourselves up to allow them to be part of the loop, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But we do have one demographic that I don't think a lot of people know is between three to 500 people enter this industry every single month. And AIM knows that because of the amount of prevention education that we give out. We give out over two hours of information, one DVD based on just you know sexual health information, HIV, STD counseling, and the other on psych social issues. Are you ready for this industry, et cetera, et cetera. So we give out between three to 500 of these, and we've found just by the people we see come and go in our database that an average career lasts between six months and three years. You're listening to Dirty Business, Should the Porn Industry Be Saved? Moderated by Mario Garza, with panelists, porn producers and former actors Nina Hartley and Ira Levine, economist Jack Kaiser, and Sharon Mitchell of the Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC news on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC news, on air, online, and now on the phone, too. Yes, yes, we've all heard the lecture about how exercise is good for your health. We've probably lectured ourselves. But it turns out that exercise could also be good for the brain, helping to fight addiction, depression, and memory loss. I'm Pat Morrison, and expiring phone tax could take millions out of the coffers of many cities. A ballot proposal would keep the tax going, but opponents believe the money will go to developers and unions, and the renewed tax might itself open the door to taxing Internet use. It's here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Dirty Business, Should the Porn Industry Be Saved, with moderator Mario Garza and panelists, porn producers and former actors Nina Hartley and Ira Levine, economist Jack Kaiser, and Sharon Mitchell of the Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation. 
told me when we spoke earlier that the, uh, at least in your estimation, that the average uh, person in, employed by the, the adult film industry makes about $60,000 a year. I don't think that came from me. It came from you? But it's pretty good. No, okay, maybe That's I made me. it up. Uh, I don't know where that talent or, or crew? Crew? sounds about right. I mean, it's absolutely talking about guesswork, but yeah. Well, what would Desire, you estimate? Well, it? And no residuals. Remember that? That's also a myth. Right. No, no, no residuals. No uh, health plan. No retirement. We're so all there are independent. no be- benefits because, again, they're you know contractors rather than employees, with a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, sixty thousand dollars a year would be would de- it would depend on who you were talking about. A much desired new female performer might command. Right. Fifteen hundred dollars for a few hours worth of services, whereas you know somebody who's been around for a while that might drop down considerably. It might drop down to half that. A crew member, a skilled camera operator, might get between five and seven hundred dollars a day, and might be able to work five days a week. So it's hard to come up with a number that applies across the board. There are so many different mm-hmm. occupational categories here. You know, when I was working, you charged a flat rate per day whether you were having sex or you're having dialogue. And some days it took, you know, weeks to shoot the movies. But now, of course, in this time where it can take only one day to shoot a movie, I noticed a lot of the young ladies, it's almost like a, like a Chinese menu. Right. One from column A, one from column yeah. B. Yeah. It's divided up into body part, sex act, and, and partner, and how, how long you're going to be there. So people, you know, if, if a girl comes in and does a single girl scene. She is paid a certain amount of money. If it's a straight boy-girl scene, it's a certain amount of money. If you throw a girl into that and have it a girl-girl-boy scene, the rate goes up. If you throw an anal sex act into that, then the rate goes up from there. So they're negotiating per body part, per sex act, per partner per so are these sag rules or (laughs) (laughs) well you could say that that, i was just about to go there sag said said no to us 34 years ago well tell us more well i wasn't making porn then i was only 13 (laughs) (laughs) however um i have a little history i know um back in 1972 during the uh, era of porno chic uh, deep throat and when really classy people publicly went to adult theaters and watched an adult movie. It was very popular. All they were shot, reviewed in the New Yorker back then. All, Pauline Gale. Yes. Yeah, Pauline Gale reviewed. And yeah. um, they were shot on film, etc. I think the uh, adult industry approached SAG and asked to be brought in to the union, and they said, please, we think not. And so to this day, we are independent contractors. And, and one thing you have to remember about adult entertainment work in front of the camera, it's highly paid blue-collar labor. It's like mm-hmm. it's like piecework or farm work. Mm-hmm. As soon as you're done, as soon as I'm done with my the movie I did on Monday, I'm unemployed again. Um, I, so I don't know when I'm going to work again next. And I'm responsible for my health insurance, my retirement insurance, everything. I'm a completely independent person, which is not a bad thing if you're raised to be an entrepreneur and know how to handle your money. But if you're a wild and crazy young person from Omaha, Nebraska, coming out here, oh my golly gosh, with your eyes as big as saucers, the money seems, it does come quickly and easily, and it seems like it's going to last forever. Yeah, it seems like it's never going to stop. It's never going to stop. You're always going to be You're always going to be young and beautiful. You're always going to be the next new thing. But after you've done about 50 scenes, then someone else is the next new thing. And if you haven't listened to our advice and made some plans, then your whole world comes crashing down. Case in point, we had a friend who was easily working 10 to 15 days a month. And after we said, don't do that, don't do that, in two years, the phone will stop ringing. And in two years and one month, the phone stopped ringing. And she has now, the last two months, has had three scenes a month for the last two months. And and she made no provisions. And we told her, make provisions. It's going to happen. Oh, no. And it happened. And so people say, well, why won't there be a union? This is not a life time job for most people. Yeah. I'm a lifer, Dr. Mitchell's a lifer, but most of the people here are transient, and so you cannot build a union on transient labor. You cannot build a union when there is no institutional memory because so few of us stay around sure. long enough people to have an institutional go. memory. Up until recently when people left the business, they left the business. They didn't yeah. stick around. I stuck around. Dr. Mitchell stuck around, and now we're giving back to the community. But that was, that's only been in the last six years that that's happened. Ten. Usually Ten, when maybe. people leave, they're gone. And yeah. so there's no one, there's no, there's no support for a union. Uh, there's no such thing as solidarity. Give me that job. You know, scab labor is always too easy to find. There's always going to be someone, someone for whom $200 is a lot, like a lot of money. a lot of money. You know, and, and they'll, they'll say yes. So we have to educate the individual talent because we're independent contractors. So I have to know going into my negotiation, 
what I'm worth, what I'm willing to take, what are my limits and parameters, and make them stick. And that's on me, which actually is a really good life lesson for any young person to learn. But you can get knocked around a bit before you realize, oh, just say no. <laughs> it seems like there's a great potential for exploiting people, particularly those younger people. If there's no union, there's there's no institutional you know, Any entertainment ha- job is exploitative at that level. There, it's and not- let's not forget that there's another factor right now that didn't really exist in the last 10 years. In, in the last four years, we've had these agents, quote unquote, some of them licensed, some of them not. We kind of nicknamed them suitcase pimps, some of them, you know, carrying the suitcases and collecting the money and so forth. But uh, they hey, recruit they drive. very young women. They drive. They drive them to the set. They'll get there on time. But they recruit very, very young women from all over the United States and bring them in, sometimes often on their 18th birthday, as we've seen many, many times. And the type of occupation, occupational sex that they're going to have tomorrow when their test comes back is guaranteed something that they've never thought of, seen, or are about to understand to partake. So we've literally got 24 hours to give them this prevention education, take home, you know, albeit 20 minutes of counseling in the clinic, two hours of take-home materials. Hopefully they watch it. The agent doesn't take it away from them. These are very young, impressionable people. And the question is, how much is the agent taking? Because that agent, an economic factor, is he's also charging the company, right, for getting right. there on yes, time I, and so yes. forth. So and, I, and I I'm pay hearing my agent now that some of them even charge the girls, so they're double dipping. So. Yes. On the other hand, I will say this. I think that compared to 10 years ago, though we still get our, our fair share of people who are completely naive to what they're getting into, there has been, through various indirect channels and through a greater visibility in mainstream media, some informal education out there in middle America. And I am so often surprised by what people do know when they get I here. I am too. And, and you know, a, well, a fair number of them come here with an agenda. and a pretty, you yeah. know, They may not be able to make it work, but they got an but idea But they come they in and they know, do. I want to be out of here in three years. I want to make this much money. And they come in with a plan. And depending on how young and beautiful they are, they can pull it off. And, but and, there's, you know... And some of them are smart. I know, yeah. I know at least half a dozen women who have bought real estate, who have planned very carefully, who are really, you know, they're not going to be here forever. What is amazing, if you are a young person and you really have a good business head, at age 18 to 23, you can pull down in a year what usually takes you five years after a college degree in business to pull down. Yeah. And so if you know what's what, you can take care of yourself for the future. And I can think of a few right now who are that smart, that young, and that determined. And the rest of, you know, it's entertainment. Party! Hey, slackers! Hey! Mm-hmm. I want to be a star! Yay! I'm going to get great sex. And- I want to I talk a little bit about sort of the moral climate for the industry right now. I, I think there's a perception among people, such as myself, with, who don't really know that much about the industry, that there's a rampant drug use lost souls who get even more lost in there. I want to ask you, uh, Nina, because you've, you've, for almost a, a quarter decade, you've been involved in this industry. Quarter century. Quarter century that uh, oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. Quarter we century. both wish it was a quarter decade. <laughs> no, it's a quarter century. That wouldn't be a very long time. <laughs> right. Excuse me. Okay. A quarter century. And so perhaps you can provide some perspective on how the climate uh, or social acceptance of uh, adult entertainment and film and pornography has changed in the in the in the years it's a, for me it's been a, a love hate thing i sought out the business and got into it at age 25 i went and found it because i'm that person so you're 18 to 19 and I, I thought about it at 18 but i knew better than to actually do it at 18 because i knew i wasn't ready but i wanted to do it at 18 and so on the one hand, pornography is more easily available. It's more widely available. By the time someone is 18, they've probably have seen a bunch of it, and they think they have a notion of it. So it seems to be more accepted. However, our culture is still very conflicted about sexuality, and each person, of course, internalizes those conflicting messages. So there's my sexuality, my experience with it, the cultural message about my sexuality, my youth, and confusion because I'm 19 and don't know anything from a hole in the ground. So it's easier to get in. It's easier to find. It's a, the barrier to entry is very low. In the old days, you had to go find it. Mm-hmm. You had to seek it out. You had to already be someone willing to go into that world. And now it's like, oh, here I am in L.A. <laughs> and and so, there's, there, so there's less chance for reflection. There's less chance for someone to be able to talk to you. You know, maybe you should just wait a couple years. And I always tell people, wait a couple years. If you're 21, you still want to do it, it's not going anywhere. You can come back in a couple of years because these are pictures that will be here forever. Ever. I know you're young. Do you understand forever? The one person you do not want to see this movie is going to be the person who's going to see that movie. 
So it's it's easy to leave. You're going to leave tomorrow. No one's, no one is keeping anybody on a set. And if you haven't done that many movies, it probably won't follow you. There's so much out there. But I would I would say this that in terms of 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 how this industry and and its products are accepted in in moral terms by the population at large. I think that opinion waxes and wanes and also depends on where you are and what kind of population you're talking about. Some people feel very strongly, very negatively about it. Some people seem to think it's a, it has some some benefits and that it's worth keeping around. But one thing you will discover uh, if you try to make the crossover from, say, this business to mainstream entertainment is that traditional barriers in between have not come down at all in the 25 years that I've been here. If you work behind the camera, you might be able to do that. But once you've been seen doing this, it will change your relationship with your family, with society, and with future employers in a way that, generally speaking, won't be easy to deal with. I was in Boogie Nights because a director was a fan of mine, and I was never asked to do one bit of publicity for it. I was not on any of the junkets, even though I'm the only one in the movie who could actually <laughs> say how, how re- yeah. realistic it was or wasn't. I was absolutely, I was not in any of the promotional materials. I'm not in a picture, of, in any still picture anywhere uh, from anything, mm-hmm. um, a couple of screen captures. And so the director liked me, and anybody at the chain might have liked me, but someone bigger says, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. We can't, you know, we, we can't let her be seen. Yeah. We, we put it this way. We always tell people, you know, you come to Los Angeles, you may think this is the back door to Hollywood. Now, the back door part of that is correct. <laughs> Hollywood, however, you do not, not, get, you do not get there from here. There was a, there was it's a, over the hill. There was, <laughs> there was a studio vice president at a major film studio here a few years ago who, when he first arrived in this town and was really struggling, made one porn film as a performer. One. And one of those kind of nasty inner office warfare situations that are very common in big mainstream studios. One day he came into work and found that there was a copy of that one porn film that he had made 15 years earlier on the desk of every single person on the floor. And he was summarily fired that afternoon. Went on and founded his own independent agency and came back from that. But nonetheless, it shows you that where where the mainstream industry is concerned, particularly mainstream entertainment, mm-hmm. they're particularly sensitive about this because they're always afraid that they are going to be under pressure from one or another special pleading moralistic group. And so they like to keep a big distance between us, except, of course, during Sweeps Week. Right. Oh, my God. All my all over the news. They're all over the San Fernando Valley that's, all of a sudden, and then they go away for another. Yeah. You know, that's when I did all my TV. Eight, eight, isn't there a, a problem week. now on the new high-def DVs, and the studios want to keep the adult industry from that's right. Producing it in We're already yeah, Sony's in indicated death. they don't want it on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. You know, although it's happening. But isn't it funny that they've historically tested technology through the porn business? Oh yeah. I mean mm-hmm. the the VCRs, the DVDs, all that was tested in the porn CD business. CD-ROMs, first. remember those? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excuse my uh, my ignorance of this. To explain more about this uh, high def Blu-ray technology and how the the, the industry is being excluded. How could that? Well, again, I mean, most mainstream corporations that have to answer to stockholders, which include oftentimes representatives of various groups who have particular moral opinions about this subject, don't want to be directly associated with uh, with this industry and, and their products directly associated with our products. But that doesn't mean that we're not an early adopting test market for all kinds of things they want to sell. It doesn't mean they're not watching us. And don't forget that they don't want to be connected with actual porn. They use sex to sell everything, but they will not use sex to sell sex. <laughs> go, You're go, so right, They use sex to sell frustration, to make you feel insecure, to make you feel inadequate, to make mm-hmm. you feel not young enough, strong enough, beautiful enough, rich enough, perfect enough to have sex, have sex, whatever that is. But they won't actually admit that we actually are doing it <laughs> and yes and they use sex for sleeps weeks i've done a number of tv shows and it was always 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 may and november when they were aired no matter when i shot the thing it was always in may and november when they actually came out. it's all coincidence uh, though so we're running out of time and i want to make sure that we we talk a little bit about the social costs specifically to the la area since this is an la based business Namely, sexually transmitted diseases, which are an issue. In 2004, there was an HIV outbreak, and by outbreak, there was four or five uh, adult entertainment performers who tested pop. Okay, four. And since then, the public health department has been hoping to get a condom-only legislation passed to require condoms. 
to the outsider, it seems like no big deal. Use a little CGI, mm, condoms are no, gone. It and seems it's wonderful to the deal. outside world. And as, a, and as a clinician, I mean, I think it's great if people would just use condoms and continue the testing program, maybe step it up for a few more other STDs. That would be wonderful. But, but AIM Healthcare, and I don't really serve a perfect world. I serve a lot of people that are renegades, rebels, and that insist that they're going to make money and that they've got some study somewhere that says that, you know, the general public, the general porn-watching public says, I want my porn without condoms rather than with. So they are going to do as much as they can to get behind testing without condoms. Legislation at this time, for me, as an observer and as the one who sits there and takes the stats and sees it, and the stats, by the way, are 80% below the general population. Not above, they're below the general population. We've got, in just California, between 1,200 and 2,000 talent members that are testing, and the rates are, other than HIV, is 1.8%. On a bad month, it will go up to 4.2%. That's counting partners from the general public. That's 80% below the general population. STD, we've virtually eliminated because all of the companies maintain AIM Healthcare to give them a clean bill of health before people walk on the set. Do we see HIV walk into the clinic? Yes, we do, between one and four cases a month. Do they get to the set? No, they don't. So, yes, the testing program does work. It does work very well, but to some, gives a false sense of security because these tests are indeed only as good as 10 days before the day they're drawn. However, look at the statistics versus the general public. There is something to that. So people that don't want to use condoms, they want to rely on the testing, I think should have the choice. You're listening to Dirty Business, Should the Porn Industry Be Saved? This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return with questions from the Socalo audience for our panelists. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Programming is supported by KOCE-TV, presenting a new three-part documentary series, The Jewish Americans, following 350 years of Jewish American history, exploring the experience of immigration and assimilation. Thursdays at 7, beginning January 17th. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Renee Montaigne. Key soldiers. Good morning. This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. As we speak, a news conference is scheduled to be underway in downtown Los Angeles. I'm Pat Morrison. Former Senator John Edwards, a North Carolina Democrat, has a book out. More NPR and local news. 89.3 KPCC. All things considered. The next big presidential primary matchup is Tuesday when on the Republican side, Mitt Romney and John McCain go head-to-head in Michigan. And on the next edition of Air Talk, we'll discuss that very important race, whether McCain will be able to build on his momentum from New Hampshire, and whether Romney will be able to keep his campaign going at all. It's Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Tonight, we're asking the question, should the porn industry be saved? Now, it's time for questions from the Socalo audience for panelists, porn producers, and former actors Nina Hartley and Ira Levine, economist Jack Kaiser, and Sharon Mitchell of the Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation. Hi, uh, my name's Nicole, and I uh, actually do STD education. So I've never heard of AIM before, and I was just wondering if you could describe a little bit about the history of the organization and um, exactly what the education you do. It's open to the public. Yeah, AIM, yeah. AIM stands for Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation. However, we do have 
programs that are open to the general public, and we're at aim-med.org and sxchec.com for the general public. And it's an organization that does early detection HIV testing, looking for the inhibitory substance, utilizing PCR DNA testing, which checks for the inhibitory substance 10 days after exposure, whereby we monitor the entire population every 30 days with this test, along with chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis testing. Upon entry, people, of course, are examined inside and out for everything from HIV to herpes, hepatitis vaccinations, Gardasil vaccinations, and thereby every three months for women and for men every five months. And we also have Life After Porn scholarship programs for people that are ready to leave. We have drug and alcohol programs, AA groups there, and we also have beds for detox for addicts as well. Hi, my name is Robert. You were talking about the polarization of Hollywood versus the adult industry. But would anybody on the panel like to comment on whether they think Hollywood will move more towards having sex acts on screen? And has anyone on the panel seen the movie Short Bus, for instance, by John Cameron Mitchell, who is a known Hollywood performer? Well, they say, some people seem to be trying to go that way. In Europe, they've certainly been doing it a long time. Mm-hmm. I thought Catherine Briott's film, uh, Romance, a few years ago, is an example of that, which actually had someone from our business in it. But I think that, again, you have to look at what the gamble taken by a mainstream producer is in doing this. Because the minute you uprate a movie, you, you lower the potential audience base. Mm-hmm. So there is a problem inherent in, in making mainstream pictures more sexually explicit. It's an expensive choice to make. It will limit your ability to advertise it through mainstream channels, and it will limit your audience availability. And these days, making a mainstream picture is a big gamble. You're rolling to, to make it a so-called small independent. You're rolling the dice at about five million bucks minimum. So when you start you know, when you start making bigger pictures and you start thinking about using bigger stars, you'll find many of them have clauses in their contracts that specifically forbid nudity and sex acts and so on and so forth because they don't want to lose their mainstream audience. So I don't I don't know how plus, close we'll get. Plus, there is the function of a sex scene in a porn movie, which is to hopefully arouse and induce masturbation or love making. So in a mainstream movie, you have maybe a, an explicit scene. So. No one sex act is going to arouse an entire theater audience. It's going to arouse one in five, one in ten, one in twenty, one in fifty, depending on what it is. So the one guy in the middle who's getting excited is in the room full of strangers. And, and now, you know, 35 years ago when you had to go to a theater for a movie, you were used to that. But, you know, most young men today are used to seeing movies alone. And so there's a public arousal fear problem. And then there's everyone, everyone else in the theater going, ew, e. What? <laughs> or so. So, what? What purpose is an explicit scene supposed to uh, perform in uh, such a movie? I haven't seen Short Bus yet. I don't know. I but I've talked to a few people who've seen it, and they said it wasn't very sexy. The sex wasn't sexy, and so then it becomes an exercise in independent filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And it didn't make that much money either. Yeah, there's that problem. <laughs> There is that problem again, getting that. theater exhibitors yeah. to show them and so on. Those are real problems. You know, it's, it's interesting. I want to thank the panel for coming out and speaking about what I think is a very hidden and ignored industry. And I was wondering if the panel could speak to the fact that unlike the WGA, which is representing writers, and the SAG, which is representing performers, why this industry seems particularly vulnerable to no regulation – or representation of workers. Actually, we have lots and, of regulation. Well, yeah, we have loads of regulation. If you could speak to the fact that the real economics that affect the in the trenches performers, which you have, I think, illustrated to all of us, is a three month to a two year or three year lifetime. If you could speak to those issues and what is your opinion about why government and politicians seem to be unwilling to closely regulate this industry. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's, that, it's not true. They regulate us in a way that no other industry is regulated. For instance, we are required to keep incredibly excruciatingly detailed and complex records that demonstrate that we are not committing the crime of using underage performers. In any other industry, if there is a supposition that some criminal violation has taken place, there is an investigation and the burden of proof is on uh, the uh, law enforcement agency to demonstrate that there has been some violation of the law. No, 
we have to be able to prove that we haven't violated the law at any time that any law enforcement agent chooses to drop by our offices and inspect those records. And for having the wrong piece of paper in the wrong place, you can go to jail. I wouldn't call that unregulated. No, we're regulated also in all the ways that normal businesses are regulated. We have to buy permits. We have to buy business licenses. We have to pay taxes. Mm -hmm. We're not an unregulated industry. That actually is – that's a common fallacy about us. Now, as for whether or not we are regulated in the specifics of how labor is performed in the way that some industries are, the transient nature of the workforce, as Nina Mm -hmm. says, makes that extremely difficult to do. I think there there are various kinds of regulatory schemes that at different times many of us in this industry have thought might be worth giving a try, but implementation becomes extremely difficult. When you discuss the idea, for instance, of making certain regulations mandatory through government intervention, then some representative of government, some elected representative, has to sponsor a bill, the Omnibus Porn Performers Protection Act which will then require funding with taxpayer money at a time when we have seven emergency rooms operating in Los Angeles County and we've got people dying in the hallways of county hospitals. We've got all kinds of things to spend money on and all kinds of government priorities. One of the things that is a problem is the, is the hypocritical attitude that society has toward this business. It's a principle of common law that you can't simultaneously regulate and prohibit. You have to choose If you want to recognize something as legitimate, then you can regulate it a little better. But if at the same time government has a mission of trying to eradicate it, then it can't really regulate it very effectively while it's doing that. You have to choose between these two things. And that is a choice this society has not been willing to make. Politicians, after all, have to face the voters. And do they really want to go in front of the voters and say, yes, I'm the one who appropriated $10 million of your money to look after the health of porn performers? You're going to have a tough time finding the guy who wants to do that. (laughs) We've had trouble with it. My name is Olga. I have a a question for Dr. Mitch. And uh, first of all, I want to tell you that I admire your work. I think that's... Thank you very much. I'm a physician. I I never knew that such a thing existed as far as the sex workers' health. But... And maybe it's a little bit technical, but the question uh, has to do with your testing and sort of reiterating to what uh, happened earlier here. There is an inherent incubation period in a lot of infections, including syphilis, which are usually 7 to 10 days. So that sort of interestingly matches your 10 days thing. Uh, The HIV, um, I'm glad you're checking the uh, PCR DNA, of course. uh, That's much better than the antibody when there is an incubation period that can actually last a few months. But there is an inherent... I mean, this is where I'm struggling. So it's like, how do you really... Chlamydia and gonorrhea, incubation day. We use also PCR DNA for chlamydia gonorrhea by no, urine. No, no, I understand. That I understand. But what do you do with syphilis, for example? Syphilis, fortunately, we have never really had a problem with. And I have to say that I don't think we're going to get past this year on escape from that. It's really been unbelievable that we have seen probably two people that have obtained syphilis that were in the industry. And we're very fortunate that they did not spread. Uh, Syphilis, as you know, is a very, very tricky uh, disease, not only because of the incubation period, but because it imitates other STDs. Now, at this current time on our website, if you'll notice, there is a very large outbreak of syphilis Mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe, particularly in Budapest and, uh, and Prague. And that industry is shut down now until December 1st and possibly January 1st. I'm very concerned about the talent going back and forth. Mm-hmm. We're asking them to abstain from working for a long period of time before they test, but there's no regulation. So what AIM does, we're not the police department and we can't follow people around and make sure and see who they're having sex with outside of the industry and who they're not. People give us partners voluntarily. We contact people voluntarily. Our stats are actually extremely accurate and very good and also registered with the county health department. But I'm, I'm very concerned about this uh, European syphilis outbreak. We just haven't seen it in the last 10 years in this straight population. And speaking, again, speaking as a performer, living is risky. Life is a sexually transmitted disease and it's 100% fatal. I think <laughs> someone said once, thank God for AIM, if I worked in construction, I would risk breaking my bones, falling off a roof, etc. So in adult entertainment, I risk 
a wrenched knee, a sore back, and I risk STDs. That's a risk I'm willing to take. The rest of my life, I wear seatbelts, I don't smoke, I don't drink, you know, I do, I do risk reduction. So this AIM is a wonderful example of harm reduction. Again, these are very young people, and getting them to take care of themselves can be hard. Going back to when you were 20, you know, how, how risk averse were you when you were the age of most performers? Uh, you were in pre-med, good for you, but you know, most people are not in pre-med at age 20. They're, they're finally free of mom and dad and they're going to show the world what for. So yes, we're concerned about STDs um, in this population and we also have to acknowledge that that is a risk of uh, working here. There is a concept, economically speaking, known as assumption of risk. It's mm-hmm. also it's a, it's, it's a concept in law as well. That there is an assumption of risk in employment that is shared by an employer and an employee or by a contractor and a contractee. And the question of how that assumption of risk is to be divided is always a contentious one, which is why labor law is a good place to make money if you're a lawyer. Yeah, because right. there is no simple solution. There is no way to make employment risk-free. Part of what you get paid for on any job is the wear and tear and stress and danger of whatever it is you do. There is no job that's without that. I've worked in lots of other jobs and lots of other you industries. still have carpal tunnel. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was a reporter. And also, you, with something like syphilis, you can be wearing a condom and still get it. Right. You know, it's just one of those things that aren't protected by a condom. And one thing about, one thing about condoms, actually, they don't, you know, they don't protect against herpes. They don't protect against warts. They don't protect against syphilis. And with the external ejaculation in terms of being most obviously risky for HIV transmission, I don't know, honestly, it's going to be so on PC, and I apologize in advance. I don't know how much good universal condoms would do in adult entertainment, except make me more raw and sore and more vulnerable to disease. There is that potential, too. I mean, there's the, there is the unintended consequences aspect of almost anything you try to do. Um, when you, when, which is, of course, you know, every industry doesn't like to be regulated, and they'll always make these arguments. And when I make these arguments, I hear other, you know, I hear the coal industry making those arguments. I go, great. I just love hearing myself say that. But there is some truth to it. I've been on both sides of the camera, and I've been around this for a long time, for 25 years, and I've worked in, you know, as a, as a volunteer in various ways to try and make things better. And there is a, there is a goal that you seek, which is 100% prevention of risk, but that is not a goal that any industry ever attains. So you keep trying to get as close to that as you can get and, and not accidentally do anything that undoes your attempt to get to that goal. But it's very hard to achieve beyond a certain point. As you narrow down the existing risk, each step becomes more difficult to do. Mm-hmm. So we're at, a, we're at a place now where risk is lower than it's ever been. But I don't know how much lower we can make it yeah. than what it is now. My name is Peter Kernt. I have a comment and a question. First of all, I also need to disclose that I work at the health department. I'm the director of the Sexually Transmitted Disease Program for the County of Los Angeles. I have been uh, aware of uh, the health issues for workers in this industry uh, since probably 1998. And at that time, there was an outbreak of HIV that uh, resulted in the infection and lifelong health problem for at least five workers. And going back through the 90s, there are case reports, and I know Mitch and others on the panel can speak to that and many other performers. And then I would say since 1998, and we've worked also closely with AIM, providing them the testing services of our public health laboratory, I would say really until then we didn't have a very good understanding of the extent to which workers in this industry were exposed to and infected with chlamydia and gonorrhea, syphilis, and HIV. And as well as, you know, I think we haven't really yet fully characterized the risk of of workers in this industry that also have herpes, HPV, that are exposed to fecal pathogens, amoebas, uh, trichomonas, and other shigella, other serious communicable diseases that are transmitted through fecal material. So I think we have a really important, and our view of it is we don't care about the content. This is a legal industry, and I think in part what the industry really is trying to do is emerge with good business practice and good ethical business practice. And it's also going through the growing pains of an industry that's trying to regulate itself And also it reacts to that. I mean, you know, any industry, it doesn't matter what they're regulated, there's resistance to it. 
but generally there's acceptance and with it. And I think there's one really thing important that we've learned over the years is that just by screening, all you're doing really is measuring when there's been a failure, when transmission has occurred, and that is preventable transmission. We know that condoms do work, not 100%, but it's about risk reduction. We wouldn't send someone into a filming scene or into a workplace. We wouldn't send a construction worker into a workplace without a hard hat, without guards. On uh, We know that from the industry, we don't need to crash cars in buildings to have the effect of a car crash. We don't need to expose workers in this industry to sexually transmitted diseases repeatedly. And I would actually not agree with Mitch what she said about the rate of STDs among performers in the industry because it is many-fold higher. And these are, these are a small group of population of women that come back and repeatedly are infected three and four times over a six, 12-month period. And all of that is, is preventable. Yeah. So question. let me jump ahead to my question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> My, I guess my question is to our, uh, our guest, the economist, what sort of modeling are you aware of that has been done, that could be done, that would balance the, the human costs, the economic costs to those that work in the industry against what might be the, the cost or the marginal cost to provide protection consistently in the industry, and in so doing, level the playing field so that those out there are making it are able to make a product that's legal and participate in a legal industry. It would be very, very difficult because you've got a transient workforce. That's the problem with the cohort. You've got people coming and going. You've got people coming and going. And so it would be a very expensive and time-consuming process. And then here again, you would probably be criticized for doing this type of uh, study by a lot of people. You've got a cohort of people that, you know, 2,000 people, 1,200 to 2,200 people, Moving 500 people coming and going every month, you know, we know that we see two, you know, 2,000 people a month, but we know people come and people go. We know a certain percentage of those people. We try to get all of their partners, you know, we do count them, we do report them. However, there's no way to seal this population as yet. You've been listening to Dirty Business Should the Porn Industry Be Saved? Moderated by Mario Garza, with panelists, porn producers and former actors Nina Hartley and Ira Levine, economist Jack Kaiser, and Sharon Mitchell of the Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation. This is Socalo Radio. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For information, go to socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The ex-